Welcome to Come Rain or Shine, podcast of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub and the Department of Interior Southwest Climate Adaptation Science Center, or Southwest CASC. I'm Sarah Leroy, Science Communications Coordinator for the Southwest CASC. And I'm Emily Elias, Director of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub. Here we highlight stories to share the most recent advances in climate science, weather and climate adaptation, and innovative practices to support resilient landscapes and communities. We believe that sharing some of the most forward-thinking and creative climate science and adaptation will strengthen our collective ability to respond to even the most challenging impacts of climate change in one of the hottest and driest regions of the world. In February 2017, an atmospheric river damaged spillways of California's Oroville Dam, spurring the emergency evacuation of 180,000 people and almost bringing down the dam. Atmospheric rivers, also known as ARs, are narrow streams of moisture in the atmosphere that transport water vapor from the tropics to other regions. In the U.S., they mostly impact the West Coast, accounting for much of the region's moisture, and they have been identified as the primary source of hydrologic flooding in the western United States. Some ARs transport vast amounts of moisture further inland, as far as Utah and Arizona, where they have triggered floods and related impacts. We'll be talking with three atmospheric river researchers from the Climate, Atmospheric Science, and Physical Oceanography Department at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at University of California, San Diego. Their extensive research provides insights on the causes, impacts, and projected changes to ARs. Alexander, or Sasha, Gershinoff and Dan Kayan are research meteorologists, and Tom Coringham is a postdoctoral research economist, and they are all affiliated with the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes, or CW3E, devoted to the study of atmospheric rivers. Sasha and Dan are also principal investigators with the Southwest CASC. Thank you all for taking the time to participate in this podcast and share with us your research, especially during these unprecedented and challenging times. I want to start by asking why you believe it is important to learn about atmospheric rivers. What makes them a noteworthy phenomenon to study? Sash, do you want to lead off? All right, then. I, I reckon um, I'll say that um, atmospheric rivers even though they're less frequent than other storms, provide the lion's share of uh, the water resources in uh, this region, uh, especially the coastal region, but uh, uh, also inland and particularly in Arizona, atmospheric rivers get in through these, uh, uh, through a conduit uh, when, when they make landfall in Baja California and can produce um, extreme precipitation events. And actually, the largest uh, proportion of our extreme precipitation events uh, is associated with atmospheric rivers. You know, an average atmospheric river um, transports as much water instantaneously as something like 20 Mississippis, I think it was, or, or uh, three Amazon rivers. 
So they, uh, they're very important for generating water resources for the region, uh, as well as flood risk. Yeah. So this is Dan Kay, and I, I would um, only uh, add that um, they are really the major conveyance of moisture from low latitudes to high latitudes, which, of course, in, in planetary terms is just extremely important in driving not only the water cycle, but climate. Yeah, for sure. In the West, and particularly in in the Southwest, we have a great deal of variability in the delivery of precipitation from year to year. And when we've um, sort of taken that that variability apart by looking at its daily uh, sort of ingredients, what we find is that, as Sasha said, even though atmospheric rivers occur relatively rarely, uh, it turns out that it is the atmospheric rivers, either their presence or their absence, that drives a considerable part of the year-to-year uh, fluctuations in our water supply. So years in which we get um, a large handful of atmospheric rivers in the wintertime in California tend to be wet years. Years in which we are deprived of atmospheric rivers and for example, this year, 2020, we've had relatively few atmospheric rivers that have struck the central and, and northern part of uh, California. Uh, we end up being uh, generally on the dry side. So our uh, disposition in terms of our water supply is, uh, is very centrally dictated by the position, strength, uh, presence, absence of ARs. Uh, Sasha mentioned the fact that ARs are not only a benefit, but they're also a, a danger. And um, our colleague, Tom Coringham, has led the charge in, uh, in actually evaluating the uh, – the influence of ARs along the, the West Coast. So, Tom, that's a segue. Sure. Uh, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Sarah, for having us. Um, I guess I would uh, say the reason I'm interested in atmospheric rivers is uh, they affect every aspect of our landscape in, um, in Southern California and in the Western United States, and uh, they govern our hydrology and... I think we're becoming uh, increasingly aware as a society that weather and climate have real impacts uh, in terms of our economy. And at CW3E, we look at all different uh, ways in which uh, atmospheric rivers and extreme West Coast uh, weather and hydrology impact the economy. 
some of our work has been focused on evaluating the costs of flooding associated with atmospheric rivers. Um, we found that 84% of the flood damages in the western 11 states uh, over the last 40 years have been uh, caused by atmospheric rivers, uh, which works out to be about a billion dollars a year on average, although those damages are distributed pretty unevenly across the years. You can have several years with very minimal damages, and then uh, a few storms will uh, create extreme damages. But uh, atmospheric rivers are also beneficial to our economy in the sense that they provide uh, water and they replenish our water supplies, which we use for agriculture and municipal water use, uh, industrial use. Uh, we use them to manage our wetlands and our scenic rivers. Um, so they're critical in, in many ways to the economy of the West. Excellent. Thank you. So you spoke a little bit about the impacts to water resources and stream flows, and as well as um, the economic impacts. Could you speak a little bit about impacts to coastal systems and ecosystems from ARs? Well, uh, I'm, I might like to say um, that, um, um, you know, for anybody who has seen the map of uh, precipitation distribution in the West, uh, we, we realized that it's governed by the presence of mountains. Uh, and, um, uh, and atmospheric rivers produce orographic precipitation, uh, meaning that when they deliver, um, a lot of moisture, so it's basically, uh, wind and moisture is an atmospheric river. Uh, and when all that moisture hits a mountain range, it gets squeezed out of, of uh, the river or as orographic precipitation. And so atmospheric rivers really contribute a lot to that picture of the precipitation distribution in the West, uh, basically making the windward sides of, of the uh, mountains, um, both uh, coastal ranges and the Sierra Nevada and, uh, and further inland uh, wet. Uh, and, uh, and also producing a rain shadow on the leeward side. Um, so, um, you know, obviously that goes a long way to determining, uh, the spatial distribution of our, uh, ecosystems. Um, and, um, certainly atmospheric rivers are also, uh, warmer storms than, than uh, other winter storms. So the snow levels are higher associated with atmospheric rivers, there's more runoff. Um, and, uh, that, uh, all ends up, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, if the reservoirs can't capture that, uh, most of that ends up, uh, in the coast and, uh, uh, and a lot of that, uh, actually a lot of that runoff carries, uh, toxic, uh, uh material with it that's been collecting uh, on the surface in between storms that has impacts on coastal uh, ecosystems uh, as well as uh, public health for uh, people that uh, uh, that go in the water after these events. You know, the same places that, that get uh, wet from atmospheric rivers are typically susceptible to wildfires. And um, <clears throat> whether 
Um, you know, so the presence or absence of atmospheric rivers can uh, determine uh, or impact uh, wildfire risk as well. I think Dan can uh, uh, talk more about that because he's been uh, leading some really interesting research into that very question. Yeah. Okay. I guess I'll I'll jump in. In our Mediterranean climate system here in California, we have we have long dry seasons uh, starting usually in in June and persisting into sometimes uh, September, sometimes October. Sometimes um, we don't get meaningful rainfall until December. And it turns out that the onset of um, of relatively bountiful uh, sort of ground wetting precipitation uh, varies from year to year on average by about a month. So uh, one year it can be relatively early and the next year it could be two months later. Uh, on average, um, the, the first really good wetting storm in Southern California is, um, occurs about on November one. And now we've looked at a record that goes back to World War two, um, and catalog these autumn precip onsets and, um, Interestingly, uh, so we've, uh, we've identified these, these first events of the, uh, essentially that, that punctuates, that ends the, the very dry, uh, summer and early autumn season. And in hindsight, what we find is that atmospheric rivers, uh, are more often than not the driver of that first wetting rainfall. So they're extremely important to ecosystems. They're extremely important to uh, our society and to the uh, essentially the cost of, of wildfires and so on. If we have a, if we have a season in which this first wetting uh, rainfall is delayed, we tend to get more wildfires. We have more opportunities for Santa Ana winds and, and that kind of risk. If on the other hand, we wet the, uh, the, the soil and the vegetation, then even if we have those kinds of events, they're not as risky because, uh, the system is, is moisture. I also want to turn back to the coastal part of this and just, um, mentioned that um, a lot of the the damage that's inflicted by atmospheric rivers happens in in coastal regions and maybe again Tom might might want to <laughs> take off on that one because he's looked at this in great detail along the west coast sure yeah um, in terms of coastal systems uh, Dan is right a lot of the flooding is coastal flooding um, it, in the West, uh, obviously there, there are a lot of different, uh, forms of the flooding. There's river flooding, um, in areas like the Russian River, uh, have been very significant. Um, we see, um, mudslides 
Um, and debris flows in more hilly terrain, especially after wildfires. Um, so there's an interesting interaction there between wildfires and atmospheric rivers. Um, and then in coastal areas, um, we see flooding associated with atmospheric rivers, and we expect this to get worse uh, in the coming century uh, for two reasons. First, we expect uh, atmospheric rivers uh, to become more intense, and I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about that um, soon. But we also expect uh, sea level rise associated with uh, human-caused climate change, and those uh, two combined um, are likely to produce uh, significant increases in coastal damages. And it's not just houses that are at risk, but we have our infrastructure, coastal infrastructure, um, energy supply, uh, transportation networks. Uh, so that's something we need to be thinking about uh, as a society is how to respond to the, the joint threat of sea level rise and increased intensity of atmospheric rivers. Um, in terms of ecosystems more generally, uh, obviously atmospheric rivers have impacts on the, the drought cycle, uh, which modulates all of the ecosystems of, of the West and um, have significant economic impacts through agriculture, but also through um, uh, impacts on endangered species, so endangered salmonids, uh, salmon, steelhead in uh, in rivers in the West. So these are um, these are all impacts of atmospheric rivers that we are working to understand and better manage. Yeah, if I can just jump in uh, and sort of uh, join some of the things that Dan and Tom uh, just said with one recent example, uh, thinking specifically of the Thomas fire, uh, that was the biggest wildfire in California uh, at the time it occurred. The unusual thing about that wildfire was um, how late in the season it was. Uh, it started, uh, it basically burns through most of December and into January because there hadn't been any um, sizable precipitation of the type that Dan was talking about uh, until early January. Um, and... Uh, uh, December is actually the peak months for Santa Ana winds, which are the downslope, dry, gusty winds that, that uh, fan most of our most catastrophic wildfires in Southern California. And um, uh, if uh, they occur before, uh, before significant rains, uh, then uh, catastrophic wildfires are possible. And if the rains don't, if the rains are late and don't occur uh, until, uh, you know, into December, we're getting to the peak of the Santa Ana wind season when you're likely to get back-to-back -back Santa Ana winds. And that's what happened uh, in the case of the Thomas fire that ended up burning through most of December, um, fanned by back-to-back -back Santa Ana wind events. It became the largest wildfire in uh, Southern California. Uh, history by now, and um, uh, and it was finally put out, I think, on January 9th by an atmospheric river, uh, which put out the smoldering remains of the Thomas fire and caused uh, 
debris flows that added insult to injury uh, and killed more people. That was a great example, Sash, of, uh, of, of how this uh, sort of fits together. It's also an, uh, an example of uh, what we expect uh, more in the future, because uh, one of the things that um, uh, that we're expecting with climate change, for example, is a later start to the wet season. So, yeah, it's a perfect segue, Sasha, and Tom touched a little bit on this, too. But could you um, elaborate more on the kinds of changes that we expect to see in the future with climate change in regards to the behavior of atmospheric rivers? Um, well, there is a very specific uh, regime change that we expect in terms of precipitation to occur in, in the southwest. Um, and uh, specifically in uh, the Mediterranean uh, southwest. So um, that's uh, mostly California. And um, uh, basically, that's where, as Dan said earlier, um, we have a wintertime wet season and, uh, and a dry summer season. These Mediterranean climate regions basically sit on the boundaries of the subtropics and the mid-latitudes. And so they have uh, subtropical dryness in the summertime and, uh, and mid-latitude storms uh, producing pretty much all the precipitation in the wintertime. Well, uh, with uh, polar amplified climate change, uh, the subtropics are basically expanding, and, and that's uh, evident from observations and uh, climate projections as well. Uh, and as the subtropics expand, the dry season basically gets longer, and uh, those mid-latitude storms that, that uh, bring us the precipitation gets, get pushed uh, into a narrower winter season, focused more on December, January, and February. Um, basically, what we see uh, is that there's a decrease in precipitation frequency projected for the future, which is mostly driven by decreased storm activity in the fall and spring. But the really extreme imp impactful um, precipitation events which are mostly atmospheric rivers, uh, are becoming more extreme in uh, a warmer climate. And, um, uh, and uh, we have basically studied the, uh, both parts of this, both the decreased precipitation frequency as well as the increased intensity. Well, the increased intensity is almost entirely driven by wetter, longer, fatter, uh, and more impactful atmospheric rivers. So uh, what uh, Dan uh, said earlier about the very volatile precipitation regime uh, or, and water resources in this region, where so much of the precipitation depends on that, you know, one, two, three big storms per year, uh, that volatility is only going to get exacerbated with future warming. Tom's done some interesting recent work on um, the prospects of uh, of flooding and damages in the future, largely driven by atmospheric rivers. 
Yeah, we've uh, I, we've taken some work that was uh, developed initially by Sasha and uh, Tamar Shavina and uh, colleagues at CW3E, um, building on uh, 16 global climate models that uh, project uh, through to the end of the century. And we found that um, our preliminary results suggest that um, the damages associated with flooding due to atmospheric rivers could double by the end of the century uh, relative to the end of last century. And uh, what seems to be driving that is this increase in the intensity of the, of the really, um, really strong atmospheric rivers. So um, last year at CW3E, uh, Marty Ralph and um, several colleagues uh, developed a scale to categorize the intensity of atmospheric rivers from one to five, uh, similar to the way that hurricanes are classified or tornadoes. And um, our preliminary results uh, suggest that using these models, uh, it looks like uh, the AR1 and AR2 storms, which are uh, weak and uh, mild storms, uh, typically um, more beneficial than harmful. They, they just replenish the water supply, but they don't do much in the way of damage. Those will probably um, remain fairly constant in frequency, but AR3, AR4, and AR5 storms, um, which are increasing intensity, uh, will become more frequent um, as the climate changes. And in uh, some work that we, we published uh, in December, we found that um, the damages associated with atmospheric rivers increase exponentially with categories. So. AR1 storms uh, typically cost uh, on the order of a few hundred thousand dollars in damages. Um, three is in the millions, AR4 in the tens of millions, and AR5 is in the, in the hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of median damages. So this shift to um, more intense atmospheric rivers could have a, a really significant impact on total damages associated with, with atmospheric rivers. I might just... Uh comment that the the warming planet which uh is involved in in uh making atmospheric rivers richer um more moist and uh and more impactful the the sort of phenomena that Sasha mentioned uh that we see in climate models uh projected over the 21st century but this warming is is a two-edged sword. Uh, as as Sasha mentioned, in in uh, taking stock of climate models in future decades, we see a decline of the the number of days with precipitation. Uh, so uh, the the future Mediterranean system actually has more dry days. And because of interannual climate variability, there's going to be some years where the, um, the orientation and, uh, the impact of atmospheric rivers in California is, is likely to be absent. Uh, you know, we get a big ridge instead of a trough along the West Coast. And it's, it's those years, of course, that are that are traditionally our dry years, but now when they occur in the future, they're occurring during a period when uh, temperatures are even warmer. 
So um, a couple of things there. One is that uh, with fewer opportunities for precipitation, uh, we we actually see in climate models the the incidence of uh, more dry years and occasionally very wet years because of this this uh, richer atmospheric uh, moisture ingredient to ARs. Um, that more dry years means that more dry years could gang up, so that we're actually concerned um, not only from the aspect of atmospheric rivers becoming more powerful, but also the fact that in certain years, they're just, they're just not a presence. And in those years, we have warm droughts and potentially longer warm droughts. So this is a, a really interesting picture that's unfolding. And of course, um, we're looking at it through the pages of uh, climate model uh, catalogs. <laughs> and, and of course, we'll continue to do that in, in the future. But right now, um, it looks as if our, our variable and volatile uh, climate in the Southwest may get even more so. And with that, do you anticipate any changes? So right now, ARs can um, propagate inland, right, and reach Utah, Arizona, and affect precipitation there. Is that expected to change at all in the future? That's a that's a great question. Um, the um, I think the the forms of uh, Synoptic weather patterns that drives those penetrations uh, is is going to continue to exist. Um, Sasha had mentioned earlier that a lot of that is um, is dictated by topographic features where um, streams of moisture can penetrate um, through gaps in the in the coastal mountains and so on. So uh, I would anticipate that atmospheric rivers are still going to be a presence in the future. And on average, globally, the atmosphere is moister under a warmer climate. So uh, it would be, it would be uh, surprising if atmospheric rivers don't continue to affect the interior western states. But I know Sasha's anxious to offer his thoughts on this. So I'll let him go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say um, that uh, Sarah's question is actually, you know, a, a research project that, uh, uh, that uh, we need to look at. It's on our agenda. Um, you know, so far the changes that we've described are, uh, are mostly driven by thermodynamics, you know, like Dan just mentioned, the warmer atmosphere basically uh, can hold more water and, and the atmospheric rivers are near saturated windy conditions and uh, uh, basically they will certainly get wetter uh, and uh, uh, the, the way that precipitation is produced from atmospheric rivers like I mentioned before, is, is orographic uplift. Uh, it's when all that moisture hits a mountain range, which in this region, our mountain ranges are perfectly aligned to squeeze 
uh, moisture out of atmospheric rivers. Well, those mountain ranges are not going anywhere on these time scales that we're talking about. And so atmospheric rivers will certainly result in more precipitation. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, that's thermodynamics. Uh, but uh, the dynamical changes in the circulation that may occur are not nearly as clear from what we've looked at um, so far. Um, a lot of those, um, you know, can, can be different from model to model and, and so on. But uh, uh, we're developing some tools to, to assess uh, those dynamical changes uh, in a more uh, robust uh, way. Uh, but I think what I would like to add, you know, in terms of uh, climate change is that atmospheric rivers are becoming more impactful and bigger contributors to water resources in the region. But at the same time, uh, there are already warmer storms uh, and uh, they're, they're becoming wetter because they're getting warmer. And so that means that, that there's going to be less snow and more rain associated with them. Uh, and uh, that means a lot of runoff. And as Dan said, um, we're also expecting, you know, more dry years. And then the wet years uh, is when we generate uh, the water resource. Well, those water resources tend to come uh, in these, in these uh, big uh, spurts that are the atmospheric rivers. And basically, that means that, that we have to learn um, how to derive water resources from flood water, as uh, our colleague Mike Denger would say. Uh, so that's, that's really a big challenge for, for the Southwest, uh, I think. So last question. Um, I know all of you are doing very exciting research. Um, what are some new and excite? What's some new and exciting research that's being done to learn more about atmospheric rivers and especially, you know, what's going to happen in the future? Are there some specific areas that are, you know, Sasha mentioned the penetration inland is one area that, that's you know, an active area of research. What are some other areas? Um, I can list uh, a couple, I suppose. You know, one, one uh, uh, topic that we're working on now is uh, is looking at um, uh, snow lines associated with different types of storms in the historical record as well as in climate projections. Uh, and we're certainly looking at atmospheric rivers uh, as, as a specific type of storm as well as the orientation of atmospheric rivers that is very important, you know, in, in terms of producing extreme precipitation on specific slopes, you know, oriented in, in, in different directions. Um, and um, uh, we, we need to understand how snowpack accumulates from, from these different storms. And as atmospheric rivers become uh, bigger contributors to the hydroclimate of the region, uh, we need to understand how those impact snowpack and runoff uh, specifically. Uh, that's uh, one thing that, that we're looking at, and we can clearly see uh, snow lines uh, increasing in the historical record uh, over the last seven decades, basically. Um, and uh, another 
Another research topic that that we've just embarked on is uh, is um, learning how to assess the contribution of climate change to atmospheric rivers um, to to rainfall uh, precipitation from atmospheric specific atmospheric river storms and uh, and basically um, get to the point where where we could even um, assess recent events and what the contribution of climate change uh, was to precipitation from those specific events. So, for example, if the same storm occurred, um, let's say the same storm that um, uh, that uh, uh, caused havoc uh, in uh, uh, around Oroville Dam, uh, if that had occurred 50 years ago or 50 years from now, how different uh, uh, would that have been, for example? So these are the, the kinds of things that, that uh, we are working on now. And there are many other avenues of research as well that I'm sure my colleagues could uh, expand on. One of the things that uh, we're looking at on the economic side is the impacts of atmospheric rivers on transportation networks. Um, so ARs uh, can penetrate inland and can um, cause uh, avalanches, uh, road closures, uh, and mountain passes, and we're interested in seeing what the impact is there. Uh, we're also looking at the, the economic impacts of atmospheric rivers on water supply and uh, on agricultural productivity in particular. Um, so I mentioned that uh, flooding uh, causes, uh, related to atmospheric rivers, causes damages on the order of a billion dollars a year um, in the Western U.S. over the last 40 years or so. Um, and the potential, I, sh I should add, I guess the potential is, is much higher. Uh, there was a, a series of studies done uh, in the last decade called the Arc Storm uh, scenario where they looked at a uh, one in a thousand year series of atmospheric river events and estimated the potential costs of um, such a, a, a storm um, to be on the order of $750 billion. Um, so this would be a storm similar to the, um, the Great Flood uh, in California of 1861-1862 if it were to happen today. And so um, a lot of uh, our research now is looking at how to uh, strengthen flood protection um, uh, to deal with the potential storms of that magnitude. Um, I would add that we're also looking at um, using forecasts of atmospheric rivers to better manage our water supply through an initiative called the Forecast Informed Reservoir Operations Program at CW3E or FIRO, and preliminary results there suggest that by using predictions of atmospheric rivers, um, in particular, uh, precipitation more generally, we can revise the water control manuals for our large reservoirs in the West um, and potentially store more water um, leading into the, the dry season. Um, the way it works is in advance of a big storm, uh, with, a, with a good forecast, we are able to pre-release water from the reservoir. And that allows us to store higher levels in, in the winter 
uh, without necessarily increasing flood risk, but with uh, an increase in water supply. And uh, our pilot study in uh, Lake Mendocino in um, Northern California indicates that uh, using um, our best forecast of atmospheric rivers, we may be able to increase water supply by up to 20%, uh, which would have significant economic impacts. Um, and uh, another research program we have uh, running at CW3E is uh, the AR reconnaissance program, where we fly uh, weather uh, aircraft that, that drop uh, radio sounds um, into the path of atmospheric rivers in the Pacific. And uh, these are being used to improve these forecasts, which could um, which feed into this uh, forecast-informed reservoir operations and, and all kinds of um, improvements in uh, water management um, in the future. So there's a lot of exciting uh, research that's being done on atmospheric rivers. I might just add that that uh, um, that improved uh, predictions uh, is uh, something that's that's a big goal for uh, uh, CW3 and and uh, uh, determines uh, directions of our research as well, not just on climate change timescales, but but also on uh, extended range. Weather prediction time scale, so, you know, two to five weeks out, as well as uh, seasonal climate prediction, um, which is predicting uh, statistics of uh, precipitation, atmospheric river activity um, over a three-month season, say, um, several months ahead. So maybe I'll... Uh I'll turn this back to the Southwest cask. Um, in my, in my view that the interactions with ecologists and so forth, which comes land management mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. kinds of perspectives is a really important ingredient in, mm-hmm. in the West. And, uh, the Southwest cask is, is one of our primary avenues to that. Mm-hmm. Um, discipline, a project that um, we are involved with, with um, cast members from the Desert Research Institute, that would be Tamara Wall and and Tim Brown, and also um, exterior uh, collaborators with CASC, in this case, John Keeley from Sequoia Kings National Park, and Alex Sifford, um, who has now a uh, private industry um, affiliation as well as with uh, a conservation group, um, who uh, John and, and Alex in particular are wildfire ecologists. And the project that we're working on is aimed at um, sort of better understanding the fingerprint of uh, weather and climate on wildfires, uh, large wildfires, uh, such as the Thomas fire, which is one that, that Sasha mentioned um, the lar- at, its, at its time, <laughs> the largest wildfire in, in California history. Um, but um, sort of conversely, uh, 
we're not only interested in conditions that uh, breed and spread wildfires, but also conditions that um, that quell and uh, and reduce wildfire activity. And of course, atmospheric rivers play into that. Um, they're they're critical elements in our uh, economies and ecosystems. And, um, and they're, they're a lot of fun to, uh, to think about and, and study. So that's, uh, gonna, I think, uh, occupy, uh, us in, uh, in the coming years as we untangle, uh, these influences, not only from short term, but from longer term changes. Uh, we, we talked about the fact that, uh, there may be this regime change where the shoulder seasons in particular are going to become somewhat leaner in terms of their precipitation, uh, delivery. And of course, uh, there's going to be lots of ups and downs on top of that, but, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to, to see how that plays out in, um, the next decade of observations and, and also, uh, climate model uh, projections. Thanks, Dan. I think that's a perfect point to end on. Um, so thank you all so much for your time today. Thank, thank you, Sarah. Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Come Rain or Shine, podcast of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub and the DOI Southwest Climate Adaptation Science Center. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like, or follow for more great episodes. If you want more information, have any questions for the speakers, or would like to offer feedback, please visit climatehubs.usda.gov or swcasc.arizona.edu. Our sincere thanks to USDA Agricultural Research Service, the Sustainable Southwest Beef Project, and the U.S. Geological Survey for supporting this podcast. Mm-hmm.